was against them. But that particularly the meditative factor of the jhanas worked against them automatically. The first two factors of the meditation don't have anything to do really with the meditative absorption. They exist in any case, the initial and the continued application to the meditation subject. However, if you have now been able to have continued application, for some time anyway, to the meditation subject, you will find that it has already given great impetus to the meditation practice, that doubt has already been reduced greatly. And as I mentioned yesterday, the delightful sensation of the first meditative absorption works against ill will. In the second meditative absorption, the second jhana, the experience is one of joy. And it is the kind of joy which has no outer condition, only the inner condition of concentration. And because of that, it creates a great deal of self-confidence. Because if we can be independent of all the things that happen around us, independent of our sense contacts, whether we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, or think anything nice or not, makes no difference. We can be independent of the moods and ideas of other people and have this reservoir of inner joy available when we sit down to meditate we feel strong and we feel secure because we know that we can handle ourselves we don't need anyone else that doesn't mean that we can't have good relationships. On the contrary, our relationships will be immensely better because we don't rely upon the relationship to give us joy. On the contrary, we have our joy already, so we are willing to give joy. Makes all the difference in the world. It sounds very simple, but it's not usually the case. The second jhana, which it has as its main focus, joy, counteracts effectively our first hindrance, the desire for sensual gratification. Now this desire for sensual gratification can be called greed, it can be called wanting, it can be called passion, it can be called liking, it doesn't matter what you call it, 
it remains the same thing. I like to get it nice through my senses. I like to have it comfortable and pleasant. This does not appear in ordinary human society as a hindrance. On the contrary, it appears to be a perfectly natural and quite admirable trait because this is what our society is advocating. More means better. So the more we want and the more we get, the better we must be, must be, and the better our life must be. If that isn't so, we have already experienced. But we may not have yet understood that it's all due to our own sensual desire. We may have thought it's due to the kind of society we live in. That's a mistaken view because all of us have created that society and we are busy recreating it every day. The only way that we will ever change that is by changing our own inner focus. Now, if we were to say, okay, sounds reasonable to me, I won't have any more sensual desire. Wonderful. Doesn't work. Not a chance. We have to have a substitute. We have to have something else something that substitutes for our potential gratification. And the only way we can find that substitute is through the meditative absorption. There is no other substitute available. Now, that joy is not based, obviously, on any sense contact. On the contrary, sense contact would be detrimental to it. If we were to see, hear, taste, touch, smell, think, anything, we couldn't be absorbed in our meditation. So the two are detrimentally opposed to each other. And yet, the joy that is being experienced in the second jhana is of a far more fulfilling quality than anything we can get through our senses. What we can get through our senses is always tinged with grasping. We want to have it and we want to keep it. And since we can't keep it, we want to have it again. If we were to use that kind of approach, in the meditative absorption, we wouldn't have a meditative absorption. The two are again detrimentally opposed to each other. In the meditative absorption, all that happens is that we're concentrated on that which exists within anyway. We have inner joy. We just can't get at it because most of the time we're either thinking or dreaming or reacting and 
that inner reality is therefore close to us. It's there all the time. Meditation does not put anything new into us. The only thing it does is that we become aware of what there is already. Because we stop thinking and judging and hoping and planning and worrying and fearing and just become concentrated. So what we are experiencing in that second absorption counteracts the desire for sensual gratification shows easily because we are getting something much better and we are recognizing without any difficulty that what we are getting that is so much better has nothing to do with our senses what we can get through our senses is nothing but a disturbance and while we will still be getting sensual gratification we don't have to run around looking for it if it's there, that's fine and if it's not there, that's fine too because we have it within we probably have always had a suspicion that we have it within but we weren't quite sure how to find it much difficult to find if one knows where to look so this joy arises because the pleasant delightful sensation can only bring joy it can't bring anything else so what actually happens going from the first to the second absorption is that you change the focus of attention from the pleasant sensation, the delightful sensation, to the joy which is accompanying it. It's already there. But because the physical is very strong, in the beginning you become aware of that delight. And then letting that go into the background of our attention the joy comes into the foreground. The Buddha compared the desire for sensual gratification with being in debt. If we have, for instance, a mortgage on the house, we have to go to the bank or send to the bank monthly payments with interest. And if we're lucky and live long enough, we might pay it off one day. With our desire for sensual gratification, we won't be lucky and we won't live long enough unless we make a deliberate end to that. Because every sensual gratification is short-lived, and has to be short-lived, otherwise it becomes very painful. Our senses demand new inputs. So we are constantly in debt 
through that desire because it's constantly impermanent and changing and finishing. The necessity for the essential gratification to be short-lived can easily be seen if you think of eating. If we were to eat any longer than, let's say, half an hour, because it tastes so good, we keep on and on and on, we'd really feel dreadful. It has to stop. The same with any sensual input. It has to stop. But, of course, we want it again. So we are in debt to it. And if we get it, very nice, very nice gratification, we have to pay interest. Because next time we want it nicer yet. We can see that in every shop window. Newer, better, more gadgets, and so on. So we have that as a symbol that being in debt to these sensual desires not the senses themselves, it's a desire that we're in debt to. And the Buddha gave us an antidote for that, the analysis. Taking the thing we desire apart, seeing its part and not the whole. If you think, for instance, of a brand new shining car that we might desire to have. And instead of going in into the car dealer and making an enormous debt for the car, we look at it and see four wheels, steering wheel, brakes, chassis, seat, the motor. And as we see all these separate things, our desire to have a brand new one may abate because we can see it's all made up of parts. The Buddha said that a cart is only called, he didn't have motor cars, he had carts in those days, a cart is only called a cart when it's put together. When we look at its separate parts, we say wheels and brakes, and we say that it has a bottom and sides, and we can see that it has spokes, and all these different parts. And we don't go in raptures over these different parts. But when we see it all put together as a whole, our very strong desire for it may arise. Now that's the same with our own body. And for that, there's a very interesting meditation method. 
It is designed to balance our infatuation with our own body. Namely, imagining that you have a zipper in front of your body and then opening that zipper and taking out all the insides one by one. And whether you know them all or not doesn't matter, all the ones you know. And trying to find the spot where they are, maybe even visualizing what they look like, gallbladder and liver and kidneys and the um, intestines and the blood and the bones and all the rest of it, and maybe feeling the feel of it, and putting all these things as a heap in front of you, and getting the bones and putting them on a nice little heap, and then looking at all that, and inquiring, where is me in all that? And then taking them all and sticking them inside again nicely, zipping it all up again, and then recognizing the fact, oh, that's me, all put together nicely. Nowadays, we can even put spare parts in. <laughs> And while they're still in the surgery, sitting in formaldehyde, they're certainly not me. But once they have been put inside, then it's me. Taking oneself apart like that is extremely helpful to get an object objective view of who this is who's sitting on the pillow. Is this body really a person? Or is it made up of all little parts? This is one of the antidotes that the Buddha prescribed for everything that we have a desire for to have and to own, to keep. And we certainly have a desire to have and to own and to keep this body. And it applies to things just as much. It applies to everything that we come in contact with that we would like to have. At the same time, we can also see that it's impermanent and that it that it, its ownership will not bring about the fulfillment that we're looking for. Because we've tried all that ownership before and weren't fulfilled before. So why should we be fulfilled this time? But without having the substitution of the joy in the second jhana, this would be a very hard task. And it would probably remain intellectual. Most likely. 
But then we are able to have a state of inner being which is far more fulfilling than any sensual contact can ever be because it is not grasped at, not clung to, and it doesn't have the fearfulness of loss in it, but it's just experience and nothing else, and therefore it has purity in it. When we have that, then our desires are greatly diminished. Not only are they greatly diminished, but our essential contacts have a far deeper meaning for us. Because having experienced this inner joy <coughs> and not having the desire to keep it, to have it, to own it, we can translate that into all our sensual contacts. With the pleasant ones, we can therefore be only experiencing without wanting to keep, without the fear of losing. And when that happens, the joyfulness which arises from that contact has far more impact. It goes much deeper. It seems real for the first time. With the unpleasant ones, since we know already that everything is constantly changing and moving, and since we're not trying to react to it, they too are just experienced and disappear again. So our whole being is cushioned. And this being cushioned against the unpleasantness and cushioned against the greed to keep the pleasantness gives a feeling as if one can live on oiled wheels. It isn't such a chore anymore. To live. It's always difficult to be a human being, but this oils the wheel. And that might be one of its very important factors. Besides that, it also shows that we can only have these experiences if we leave out the me, I want it, I'm going to have it, I'm going to do it, all that has to be left out. In other words, we learn to just be present with our attention and experience whatever there is. 
Now to just be present as compared to that, what people usually do, is so different. And yet it sounds so normal to just be present. Most people never find out what it's like to just be present. Because we immediately, when anything hits us, any kind of sense contact, there's a reaction. That's why I wanted you to go outside and see something and become aware of the instinctive impulses reaction which happens. And it happens equally with hearing, of course. And equally with thinking and equally with all the other contacts we make. So to just be present is absolutely necessary in order to have the absorptions, to ever experience them. And it is such a different way of being alive that we can translate it into everyday life. So from a practical standpoint, when the first absorption has been experienced, the delightful feeling, we change our focus of attention, change from the delightful sensation to the joy which is present and make that the primary meditation subject. It often feels as, 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 as if it comes out of here, out of the chest, where we say that the spiritual heart is located. It feels as if it comes from there. It doesn't have to feel like that. It is just a very strong feeling, which sometimes is so strong that tears come to the person's eyes. But sometimes it's very mild. It always contains a certain sweetness. It's a feeling of being sweet. We all have it. It's just waiting in there to be touched upon. That's all. I have often wondered what this world would be like if everybody were to do at least the first and second prana. It should be totally different, but of course it's just a fantasy. The inner sweetness is part of our inherent purity. When this is experienced, it should be possible to stay with that for at least 10, 15 to 20 minutes. It's important to have for the second jhana more time span than for the first. The first one, while it is delightful, is still very gross compared to the second one, which is strictly a very pure emotion. And because it creates so many benefits for us, we need to experience it fully. When it vanishes because of lack of concentration or because the time is up, 
it needs to be seen as also that too is impermanent. And then recap, recapitulation, how do I get in there? So that it becomes an established pathway of meditation. While I have said that this is different from what we experience in the world, and this is so, it also needs to be said that all the jhanas are still mundane, worldly experiences. They are not super mundane. They are not transcending the worldly yet. But they are the pathway. Because they are such a support system that without that support system it's very difficult to have a spiritual path where one can actually see that it has changed one. Naturally, all meditation changes one. Because even without concentration, without any marked concentration, we have counteraction against the first, the two hindrances of loss and torpor and skeptical doubt. But when we have the antidote for ill will and potential desire, we're really getting into the center of our being because ill will and sensual desire are greed and hate. And greed and hate are the two enemies with which we constantly have to deal. They may not always appear as such strong emotions as greed and hate seem to be, but these are headings. Headings for all that which we crave and all that which we resist. So when we have those two antidotes, we really have an enormous support system. Again, we know when we have established the pathway there that we can get there when we want to. So the mind is at ease. It knows it can do it. And just having sufficient time available, it will do that and regain energy. This is another factor of the jhanas. And it's the only way we will get new energy, mind energy. Our thinking is hard work and we are constantly expending our energy with our thinking. We are expending the most energy with negative reactions. They are most tiring and depleting. Because we are not, not thinking in the jhanas but experiencing the life and joy, our mental energies are renewed, regenerated. And because of that, clear thinking becomes much easier. We don't have to assume, we don't have to try to make our mind 
go round in circles about the things we want and we don't want. The clarity of the mind is the greatest right after we have experienced the jhanas. And therefore, it is, from a tra- practical meditation standpoint, the best time to establish any insight, namely when the jhanas are finished. That is, one has gone to the first and second and however far one can get, and then look not only at the impermanence of that particular experience of jhana, but look again at the impermanence of this whole being. And at that time, when the mind has strong energy and is totally at ease and very happy, it can accept impermanence as a factor which is relieving and releasing and not something that we'd like to forget about or would like to be resist, but something that is just part of our own flow. So the best time to gain true insight is at the end of a jhana meditation or, for that matter, at the end of any concentrated meditation. So if, an, if one has had a good concentrated meditation, oneself is a judge of that. That's the time then to look at either impermanence or the four elements or the four aggregates of the mind to see clearly what this person who is sitting there meditating consists of and how this person actually operates. Because at that time the mind is willing to accept the objective, impersonal assessment. At other times, the mind may resist that quite strongly and actually try to find a way out of the laws of nature. So the great value of the meditative absorption is also the fact that the mind is then able to gain insight without any resistance. It is the pathway that the Buddha himself took. It's the path that the Buddha himself taught and it's available to every meditator. It's not something special. There are a third and a fourth one in the fine material absorption but I think maybe I'll tell you about them tomorrow because I think it always gets too much in one sitting. <laughs>